1: The Telegraph.
2: Telegraph.
1: Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we discuss the apparent green light from Washington for F-16s to be sent to Ukraine. Another drone strike very close to the Kremlin. How a Russian commander says Putin won't defeat Ukraine in the near term and should instead seek a truce. And how another 400 Ukrainian children have been sent to so called summer camps in Russia in recent weeks for patriotic training.
0: Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships
1: to finally reward you with victory. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Friday, the 18th of August, one year and 175 days since the full-scale invasion began. And today, I'm joined by our France correspondent, Henry Samuel, and Telegraph reporter, Jordana Seal. I started with the major military developments of the past 24 hours. And I'm going to start with news that's breaking just in the last couple of hours. There are evacuations have been reported in Moscow City. Moscow City is the the kind of swanky business district of the Russian capital. There's footage on social media from a couple of hours ago that showed what looked like uh, five drones heading over that part of the city. Now, no blasts reported either from the drones or air defense in response to those flying objects. But that comes in the wake of the latest alleged Ukrainian drone strike in Moscow, which hit an area very close to the city centre around 4 a.m. this morning. Russian officials said air defences had shot that drone down, but that resultant blast did disrupt air traffic at all four of Moscow's civilian airports. That drone, there's images of it, you see it online, you'll see it on our website as well. It fell on a non-residential building in Moscow's Expo Center complex, so this is about three miles to the west of the Kremlin, right in the city center. No casualties reported, and no immediate comment. Well, no comment at all, actually, from Kiev. They tend not to tend not to comment on these things. But it does continue the recent trend of air attacks uh, on Moscow. You'll remember the business district, that Moscow city district, was targeted twice in the last in sorry twice in three days earlier this month. But this latest thing that's happening in the last couple of hours—we're not exactly what sure what, what sure what is going on. There were no air raid alarms in response to it, but there seem to be a large, large groups of people, seemingly in a in a semi-organized way, trying to move move out of the Moscow city area. So I'll keep tabs on that. But also, just in the last couple of hours, the cargo area and the port of the port of Novorossiysk, so this is down on the Russian coast, is currently on fire, a very big fire there. The cause of that fire and a number of associated blasts, as other things seemingly um, cook off, uh, is unknown. We don't know if that was a... There's no reports of drones or or maritime drones or anything there, so it might be be a a catastrophic accident, but we don't know. But something is burning, something big is burning in Novorossiysk. Now, news today, a bit more later from Jordana, but the, the headline news is Washington has been reported by reuters as having approved the sending of f16 fighter jets to ukraine from denmark and the netherlands they've offered they've uh, made no bones about offering their their training facilities but this is seemingly the green light for f16 but um uh, will have more on that a little bit later then into ukraine itself so on the northeast front so this is the one area where Russia seemingly trying to attack at the moment. Everywhere else, they've transitioned onto the defensive. Down the south, that is, around the back moot area, they're, they're still they're trying to hang on, really. But in the northeast, they are trying to go onto the offensive. So this area around the um, around the city of Kupyansk, so just northeast of there, about five k's to the northeast of Kupiansk is the town of Sinkivka. There's been a lot of recent pressure in that area, in the whole of that front, the northeast front. We think as Russia tries to. Well, they're trying to break through, as we know, but also trying to get uh, Ukraine to to divert resources from the the counteroffensive to the south. Again, we think up the north, we think it's mostly uh, conscripts, units that have been backed by conscripts. So they're back to the kind of back moot, meat grinder style attacks, um, but they do have great weight of numbers. And they have been making some advances in the last few weeks, which has required Ukrainian authorities in the northeast of the country around Kharkiv um, to move civilians out of the area. On the southern front, Russian forces are also trying to push through in the vicinity of Marinka. So we're uh, about 10 ks west of the city of Donetsk, but they're, they're, nothing's moving there. The Ukrainian forces are holding the line uh, and Ukraine is, is attempting to continue those advances to the south towards uh, Melitopol and Berdyansk on those two axes, which is where they've had a, a level a level of success in the last couple of weeks. You remember, yesterday there was there was well they they've consolidated positions on the uh, on the eastern side of of that southern axis around the Urugayna uh, area, and there was imagery yesterday to the west, more towards the Zaporizhia area, in the town of Robertina, of a Ka fifty two Russian Ka fifty two attack helicopter that was shot down. Just on that, I mean, there's imagery on online now, social media. You'll see that two two. Um, Two helis. on 'm sh- the second one looked a bit like a maybe an m i twenty four not entirely sure, but anyway, two helicopters, the first one of which was hit, and seemingly the round went straight through or the missile went straight through it, but it, it came down catastrophically no one you know, you 're not, you're not going to survive that but interestingly from a with my former aviation hat on, they were flying right in what we used to call the threat band, so basically the safe place for any air but especially helicopters that are quite slow in relation to everything else that's flying you know you you either want to be very very high away from where missiles can't reach you which you're really not going to you're not going to get there in a helicopter basically or you need to be very very low so below about 150 feet because below that any missile coming at you or trying to lock onto you or any soldier with a a weapon handheld weapon a rifle by the time they've seen you and tracked you you're behind a hill or you're behind a tree, you're behind a, behind a building, you're in a fold in the ground, you're using terrain masking. So you need to fly very, very low, which is quite tricky, quite dangerous to be uh, close to the ground. Cumulo granite, as we used to call it. But you know, they might have been tra- having to fly high in order to fire their missiles. They're increasingly using unguided missiles, just lobbing missiles in a, in a ballistic arc. So it can be quite inaccurate. Or it may have been that they were inexperienced pilots due to, to the attrition rate. The Economist reported earlier this week that they think a start point of about 100 or about 100 Ka 52s last February. We think Russia's down to about 25 now, so the number of pilots there have been severely written down. So maybe it was inex- inexperienced. but for whatever reason, that part, the, the helicopter was in right in the middle of the threat band. It wasn't. It wasn't high enough, and it wasn't low enough. It was just you know against a clear sky and a good air defender. It was a it was a pretty one sided fight that. Okay, next little bit. The Russian commander of the Vostok battalion, that's fighting in southern Ukraine, said yesterday that Ukraine will not be defeated, and has suggested Russia should freeze the war along the current front line. So this is a gentleman called Alexander Kordakovsky. We've met him before, a former Ukrainian commander in the SBU, so a former Ukrainian member, a commander in the security service of Ukraine. He, well, he, I mean, he defected in 2014. Basically, after, well, when Russia moved into the Donbass in 2014, Kordakovsky changed size. He was part of the local insurgency. He then defected to Russia and served for a period as the security minister in the, the illegitimate Donetsk People's Republic. But he uh, was speaking yesterday on Telegram, social media channel, after his battalion was defeated at Orogyna earlier this week. And he had actually complained earlier in the week before that final defeat, again on Telegram, that he wasn't getting the reinforcements he had been asking for. I think that says quite a lot about Russian comms and commanders possibly see more value in going public on social media about such concerns rather than um, using the chain of command. I think his comment there about reserves, or the lack of them, was interesting at the time, given that it may, and only may, I'm not getting any stronger than that, but it may indicate Russian forces, although very well dug in, have no great flexibility or strength in reserves such that they can't move forces to plug gaps or plug a breakthrough by the opposition, which is exactly what reserves are for, or certainly one of the tasks, anyway. Anyway, Kordakovsky said Russia would not be able to topple Ukraine militarily in the near term and that Moscow will likely have to come to a truce and enter a phase of neither peace nor war, his words, with Ukraine. Uh, He said, can we bring down Ukraine militarily now and in the future? No. We can, though, enter a phase that is most unfavourable for Ukraine in its independent state, a phase of neither peace nor war. We could be in this phase if, instead of the special military operation, the currently occupied territories were recognised and officially taken under guardianship, but it would require a completely different twist of history. So he's he's cramming quite a lot in there, but I think he's going to be disappointed anyway. Now, Skolikovsky has suggested that Ukraine would be sufficiently weakened in in this state of frozen conflict and that Russia would then be able to exert more influence over the country. So commentary here from the ISW, the Institute for the Study of War, US-based think tank, said that he was reintroducing a narrative that had been largely dormant since Wagner group financier Yevgeny Prigozhin, remember him, uh, his armed rebellion. The ISW said that Russian sources have periodically claimed that a Kremlin faction is interested in freezing the war along the current front lines for similar reasons, as well as over concerns about domestic political stability and the economic fallout of the war. And the ISW finished by saying, Kordakovsky may be reintroducing the narrative into the Russian information space on behalf of the faction allegedly interested in freezing the war, although he likely has limited influence on the Russian leadership itself. But he's a name, he's known, and he's out there with a narrative counter to the Kremlin. So uh, that, I think... Well, it would be interesting to see what happens there and interesting to see what happens to him. And just finally for me for this part, Britain's uh, Ministry of Defence said today that earlier this week on Tuesday, the first deputy head of the Russian Presidential Administration, so a guy called Sergei Kirienko, travelled to Donetsk in the um, Russian-occupied eastern part of Ukraine to visit schools and check their integration into the Russian education system. Now, in Zaporizhia Oblast, we know... The Occupation Administration has, well, reportedly received instructions from Russia regarding the introduction of new standards for the accreditation of educational institutions. And Russian journalists are also thought to be employed in media outlets in the occupied regions. Now, we reported last week, I think it was last week, maybe the week before, I think it was last week, on a new textbook on the history of Russia. Our um, friend and colleague Natalia run this story new textbook on the history of russia that's going to be issued to schools in occupied regions of ukraine and throughout russia actually in a couple of weeks time just to to hit the start of the new school year the book praises the so-called special military operation and describes ukraine as an ultra terrorist state this is all part of russia's aim to create what british defence intelligence say is a pro kremlin information space in the occupied regions in order to erode Ukrainian national identity. Now staying with the theme of Russia's war on children, I'm very pleased to welcome to the pod for the first time uh, Telegraph reporter Jordana Seal. Jordana, Jordana, welcome. Very welcome. What have you what have you been looking at today?
2: Thanks so much for having me today. There are actually a few interesting updates that I've been looking at today. The first is that Ukraine's Center for National Resistance which is a group that collects intelligence on Russian-occupied areas for the Ukrainian military, have reported that 400 children have been sent to summer camps in Russia in recent weeks. These summer camps obviously aren't recreational. They're focused on patriotic training, indicating that Moscow has resumed its program of mass indoctrination. It appears that this is the first time that Ukrainian children have been sent to Russia to attend these camps since Putin and his ombudswoman Maria lvova belova were issued an arrest warrant by the ICC this spring over the forcible removal of Ukrainian children. Um, We've also seen that the Hong Kong flagged container ship, Joseph, and I'm not sure how to pronounce this, so I'm going to go with Scuttle, which has been stuck in the Russian-blocked Ukrainian Black Sea port of Odessa, since the day before the start of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, has finally been able to leave. They left through a humanitarian corridor in the Black Sea, and Ukraine announced the creation of the corridor last week. Moscow still hasn't indicated if they would respect the shipping corridor, but the ship has now arrived safely in Istanbul. This is the first ship that's used the corridor, but hopefully not the last. Ukraine has also launched a new recruitment campaign aimed at military-aged citizens. So that ranges from 18 to 60-year-olds. The campaign aims to counter a major recruitment obstacle, which is fear, and the videos include video and photo testimonials of prominent soldiers describing their personal fears. The main aim, of course, was to get these citizens to update their data at army enlistment offices even though the Defence Deputy Minit- Minister, Hannah Melia, has already said they're morally obligated to do so. And jo- as Dom, you already mentioned, the US has also approved sending F-16 fighter jets to Ukraine from Denmark and the Netherlands. Ukraine has actually actively sought out the US-made F-16 jets as a way to counter current Russian air superiority. The US have now said that they'll approve the transfer request from Denmark and the Netherlands once the pilots are fully trained. The official assurances that the US have given to the Netherlands and Denmark is something the two countries had recently asked for. The Dutch foreign minister has called Washington's decision a major milestone for Ukraine to defend its people and its country, while the Danish foreign minister Lars Lark-Rasmussen has told state broadcaster TV2 that the Allies have yet to decide when exactly the planes would be delivered to Ukraine. That's all from me. Thanks so much
1: thanks John i mean that that's a biggie. you've been going on about f16s for for a long time and i think how long it's going to take is uh, is open to debate the um, the sensible debate seems to be that if you've got if you've got experienced pilots already you're looking at a minimum of four months ish to convert onto F16s. I asked the um the former jet jockeys that are listening to uh, to put me right on that but I think that's that you're not going to get much change out of four months are you. And of course it's that's not that's just the one part of it. Rem- remember my rant on tepid oil and what makes capability, the difference between kit and capability. You've got to have the training, you've got to have the engineers, you've got to have the hardened aircraft shelters, you've got to have the spares all in line, all the rest of it. So just having the uh, having the jets and having the having the pilots are only the start of it. And um, there's a whole lot more that goes to uh, goes to making goes up to making the capability. I'm sorry for any pilots who are hearing that. I remember speaking to a, a great mate of mine who was in the RAF who said that he, he used to love talking about his three favorite things, me flying and me flying. So, you know, that's that's the pilot perspective. But there is more to capability than just that, I'm afraid. So it'll take a little while before these things are there. And I doubt we'll see them over the battlefield this year. But, hey, I look to people with more experience than this than I have to put me right on that. Now, joining us through a haze of blue gouloir smoke is uh, Henry Samuel, our um, our friend and colleague on the left bank. Put your paper back down, Henry. I hear former President um, Sarkozy has been in trouble again. Can you bring us up to speed on that, please, and just give us a bit of a temperature test for the uh, for where the war stands in French politics at the moment. Bonjour. Bonjour. Yes,
0: I hasten to add him on the right bank, but apart from that, you've. Got it right. So hello from a rather warm and uh, sweaty Paris. All the Parisians have left and we've just got tourists, but they're very nice, which makes a change. No, I'm not joking. So France's former president, uh, Sarkozy, Nicolas Sarkozy, he stirred a bit of outrage by suggesting that Russia's invasion of Ukraine could be ended with new referendums in occupied territories. And uh, he he said the Ukrainians will want to reconquer what's been unjustly taken from them. But if they can't manage it completely, the choice, he said, would be between a frozen conflict or taking the high road out with referendums strictly overseen, he said, by the international community. And then he moved on and he said that uh, about the Crimean Peninsula, that any return to the way things were before is, is an illusion and and uh he said that putin was not irrational and that if you did the right kind of diplomacy uh, he could be con- convinced to withdraw his tanks well some may say that's that's ritual thinking and then so sarkozy added that ukraine should remain neutral and have no place in the eu or nato And that's something that he's said before well All of this has really sparked a lot of anger, both abroad and over here. First of all, of course, Kiev, very unhappy. Uh, So Mikhailo Podlyak, uh, probably pronounced that wrong, you know, the senior aide to to President Zelensky said that was based on criminal logic. And he said you can't trade other people's charities because you're afraid of someone or because you are friends with criminals. And he said that Sarkozy had, in fact, he said deliberately participated in a criminal conspiracy for Russia's seizure of Ukrainian territories. So he clearly thought that Sarkozy was on Putin's side. So that's that's bad enough. But back home, he, he got a lot of flack as well. The Greens said that in fact, from now on, Sarkozy should be viewed as a Russian influencer. And that the he gave an interview in uh, French daily, Le figure, he said it was lunatic and shocking. And he pointed out, this is true, that Sarkozy does have lucrative ties to a Russian insurance company, and uh, who, which gave him 3 million I think, euros uh, to, to do stuff for it, and is in fact being investigated on suspicion of influence peddling and concealing crimes. And worse for Sarkozy, his former intelligence advisor uh, also said it was shameful and said he had no perspective on what's happened or what he did during his presidency, just to remind you, Sarkozy was president of France between 2007 and 2012. And he, he just reminded people that Sarkozy was one of the key voices against Georgia and UK, Ukraine uh, joining NATO back in 2008. And that didn't prevent Russia's, obviously, invasions of both countries. So Sarkozy has... Uh, caused quite a lot of anger. Interestingly, there's been very little or no response from um, the current occupant of the Elysee, Emmanuel Macron, who's on holiday in his presidential retreat down the south of France in Bricanson, but is obviously working. And he came out of the retreat yesterday and just completely dodged a question on this. So we don't really know what his his point of view on it is, because Macron is, is quite close to Sarkozy, despite the fact that he's a centrist. So perhaps you want to ask me about Macron's relationship to Putin, which has been, has has gone through many twists and turns. Probably most of our listeners know that, well, Macron, just like with uh, Donald Trump, he tried to form some kind of relationship with Putin. And just after he was first elected in his first term, he hosted Putin in the splendid uh, Versailles Palace for an exchange. So that was considered to be a bit of an honor. But at the same time, he berated Putin publicly and uh, accused Russia of trying to meddle in the electoral campaign because Russian hackers were linked to a leak of his party's um, exchanges on email. Also, by the way, Putin backed his, his rival, Marine Le Pen. but he came, So that, that was the beginning of their relationship. And he, he tried to mollycoddle I suppose, Putin, he, he then invited to him to his presidential retreat in 2019 um, down in Brueganson without telling the UK, Germany or anyone else, it seems. So that put people's nose out to join. And then at the beginning of the uh, the beginning or just before the invasion, first of all, French intelligence was apparently totally optimistic in the idea that Putin was not going to invade Ukraine, despite the fact that there were all these troops and tanks, you know, amassed on, on the border, so they got that terribly wrong. And then he proceeded to desperately try and what well, keep keep the channels of communication, and spoke to him dozens of times to try and get him to change his mind, to absolutely no avail. So obviously that that rather annoyed quite a few allies. And then when the once the invasion had occurred, finally. He he's he sort of saw reason and has now become quite hawk. He's pretty hawkish, as you probably know. The most recent thing, first of all, um, Sarko, he said. Sorry, Macron said that he, he would back Ukraine's bid to join NATO, thinking that that could actually help create some security guarantees for it and pressure Putin to to end this war like like Germany france was slow to be, compared to the u k in delivering weapons etc that's now no longer the case there's various it's, it started off by it's started off by giving shoulder launched anti-aircraft missiles quart short range anti-air missiles and uh, has well last month announced uh, that it was going to deliver long range scalp scalp missiles which are the French is the french uh, version of the storm shadow. So those are long range ones. Um, so that's quite a development. And it's also uh, said that it would consider a training um, Ukrainian pilots. So Macron's kind of done a mea culpa. He he, he's, he's, he said, look, I got Putin wrong. I was kind of overly optimistic. But it's, it's typical, France Macron believes, and it's it's France generally believes that it has a special position in the world. And if anyone's going to be there to help negotiate some kind of peace or keep channels of communication, it should be France. And that's really where we are today, Dominique.
1: Thanks, Henry. I, I, just one on um, Sarkozy before we move away from him. How much influence does he still have or political capital has he still got? Or is he just a voice because of, he was a recent former president? Or does he actually still have any any heft and influence over Macron?
0: It's interesting, not nearly as much as he used to. A, because he was recently convicted of corruption and has a host of uh, corruption cases hanging over him. Um, all sorts of things, from influence peddling to overspending during his presidential campaigns. And there's even one investigation that he handed, his aides handed over millions to uh, the late Libyan dictator Muammar Gaddafi to help in in one of his presidential campaigns. So he's got a lot on his plate on that front. The other thing to remember is he comes from the right-wing Republicans party, which fared absolutely disastrously in the last presidential elections and got less than five five percent even before that was last year even before that point sarkozy star was waning i would say that said he still remains quite a popular figure in france and he's written a series he in fact he's just about to bring out his third the third tome of his memoirs next week and this is why he gave a an interview this one is called the time of combats and it's about his time his time in office. And the other thing to know is he still does wield some influence on the French right. And it so happens that while Emmanuel Macron won a second term last year, there were legislative elections just a few months later, and he failed to get an absolute majority in Parliament, which is an absolute nightmare for him. So he's desperately trying to create ad hoc alliances. And the only party that he can really play ball with are the Republicans. So it's in his interests to keep the Republicans sweet. You also need to know that Macron came from nowhere, really. He was an investment banker who suddenly appeared on the scene and won the presidential election in 2012. And he didn't really have a party and he created it from scratch. And he basically stole or wooed people from the left and white right and he took quite a lot of heavyweight republicans into his government and so for example his interior minister uh, Gérard Dalmanin who hopes to be the next president he came from the republicans and the other very heavyweight uh, finance minister Bruno Le Maire also came from the right so he is known Macron uh, to, to admire Sarkozy's political now so I think Sarkozy for all his faults had a common touch that I think Macron just doesn't have and wished he has. And so he consults him quite regularly on the temperature of the country. So he in some ways he's important, but he certainly lost a lot of clout, no, no doubt about. It. But this. So I don't know how much trouble really this is causing or all of his comments today but macron's had enough problems of his own with putin and has been received as i said a lot of criticism for kind of sitting on the fence for too long
1: yeah i was going to ask you about that so i mean the whole his whole visits and the whole um, he was derided somewhat perhaps unfairly as you know, a useful idiot and what have you but he did seem to stick to that line of we've got to this idea that there still hasn't completely gone this idea that that we have to bear in the back of your mind we might have to deal with this bloke after the war and so on and so forth as opposed to russia needs to fail putin needs to fail and be seen to fail catastrophically to stop this kind of thing happening again but so macron's not never really shaken that off um and i just wonder if he if he ever will and so I wonder where you where you think he is on that at the moment, if if how he's seen by the French people and his handling over this war, because he has he's changed his position markedly. Now that might be, that might be wise. You know, we, we for too long we'll deride politicians for not changing their mind when the facts on the grounds change, etc., etc. So maybe it's absolutely the right thing to do. But I just wonder how how his uh, has the shine come off his his armor slightly and then just more broadly the on march project i think is it on the march or you know the the party the party was there isn't a party has that idea that you can be an investment banker, you can be from any other walk of life and you can then appeal to the population and you can be president. You know, has that been dented by his time in office, do you think, which might give room for the likes of Marine Le Pen and the established parties to come back and say, look, that was a bit of an experiment, all a bit crazy. You know who we are. We're an established party. Vote vote for us. So just where do you, if you could take take the temperature of Mr. Macron at the moment, where where would you say he is? Uh,
0: interesting. I, I'm not sure that his um, stance on, on, on Russia and Ukraine is making much of an impact to be frank here. The French like their presidents to big it up on the world stage. And there's a kind of tradition of, of, of France having its own take on the world. And that goes back to Charles de Gaulle, that it mustn't align itself too closely with the United States, that it must be balanced. And you can see Macron doing that regularly. I mean, he went to China and, and met the president and made some comments. He, he put Taiwan's nose out of joint and said, "We, you know, we we, we don't totally follow the U.S. line." These are the sort of things that you will hear from all French presidents, and that, that plays to a home crowd. They really don't like the sense that you know that, that France is being some kind of lackey. Which I'm afraid to say is something that is meted against the UK in France. They say that they, they're too Atlantists. They follow the line too strong, and so it's, it's a fine line. So I think, in a way, you've got more to gain than sticking a chin out and saying we're doing something different to 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 others, even our allies, than just than just following the crowd. And of course, they also like Macron likes to see himself as being the sort of Heavyweight European leader since Angela Merkel left, so he likes to throw his weight around. So I'm not sure France has had so many domestic problems. Probably didn't escape you. There were a few riots a few weeks ago here that were pretty scary, and before that we had the longest pension strike in, in you know in modern history here. I guess, sorry, against pension reform. So really, the French are far more interested in the kind of domestic problems than they are on on, on the ins and outs of, of macron's stance on, on Russia and Ukraine but it did it had started to permeate I would say this sense that what's macron doing continuing to talk to Putin he's not getting anywhere he's just being you know it, he's looking he's looking pretty uh, impotent here that, that kind of did trickle down and and, and then then he did change change his stance so I, I don't think there's any huge animosity towards him on on that front here. I would say. To to answer your other question, I think there's a word in French that still very much applies to the general mood in France over the last few years. It's called dégagisme. Dégagisme means the, the desire to throw out the established order. Obviously, you know, we've seen it in many other countries. Well, we've seen it. I think you could say Trump was similar to that. And to begin with, I think Macron was seen as doing that. The fact that he very much is an establishment figure, in that he had a sort of um, sort of bourgeois upbringing, went through investment banks and, and stuff like that. Didn't he, he? Cleverly, didn't stop him from looking like an outsider because it's true. He didn't. He wasn't really affiliated to a political party, and he created this thing from scratch. I think. French politics at the moment, the lead, the leaders of the other parties are just so weak and and not very credible that that's playing to Macron. He's not as unpopular, unpopular as all that today. Um, but they, do, it, another figure could arise equally more of an outsider between now and the next presidential um, election in twenty twenty seven. We'll just we'll just have to see. So that's the way I see it.
1: Lovely. Thanks, Henry. I'm going to start drawing things to a close here. We'll go around with uh, with final thoughts. I'll just I'll kick off here. But the thing I'm going to keep my eye on over the weekend is, well, I'm going to try and get some more clarity on whatever whatever this thing is happening down in the southwest of the country around um, Hezon area and across the Dnipro River. We have talked about it before. The, um, this week's Defence in Depth video is about well about about that and about where it goes where amphibious forces go from the from here more broadly so please have a look at that and comment if you if you like but we're not quite sure what's going on down there it seems more than a raid as I've said before a raid is a smash and grab you go in you grab information or you grab prisoners you smash up a couple of radar sites and then you get out you don't stay they seem to be staying the Ukrainians they seem to be staying across the Dnipro. Whether that's because they can, the Russians aren't, aren't as aren't as um, heavily fortified down there, or it's it, that is another flank they're trying to open up. We don't know, but I think it's very interesting what's developing down there, and we need to uh, need to pay attention to it as we can but as i say news is very difficult to get out of there the ukraines have, have really um, they're not allowing journalists near the front and of course there's a massive river in the way so it's difficult to get news out of there but i'm keeping my eye on the on the southwest flank but for final thoughts jordana what are you what are you going to be looking at for the next couple of days
2: i'm definitely going to be looking at russia's new effort to erode the image of ukraine amongst children i think it's really interesting they've got the patriotic training camps going on as well as new textbooks i think it will be interesting to see what ukraine do about this issue and also if russia are going to bring out any more textbook information books as well um, i'll also be looking at the humanitarian corridor in the black sea to see if any other ships are able to enter through it thank you so much for having me today it was all really interesting
1: no pleasure pleasure and henry from parry final words final thoughts please what are you looking at at the moment
0: well, Dominique, I'm not looking at Ukraine at all. I'm looking at a French winemaker who's, who's accused of selling 1.2 million bottles of champagne that turned out to be foreign plonk mixed with carbon dioxide and, and a dash of liqueur. So that's my summer story today. <laughs> yeah. So we always have, to have a, have a bit of light, light relief over here. Um, but in the last few days, we've also been looking at France's... Uh, Woes in the Sahel, but that's another story. Obviously, the coup in in Niger was a big shock to France and took took it totally by surprise. Actually, the the intelligence service totally didn't see it coming. And as France had a big presence in in Mali, um, there was a there was a coup there. They, put, they had to pull out there. There's a coup in Burkina Faso, and they've just got one and a half thousand troops left in Niger. And it's difficult to say whether they're going to be staying or not. So. France's international credibility, certainly in Africa, is currently on the line. So that's that's an interesting story right now that I'm looking at
1: yes we, uh, we we need to talk about that it's, it's very interesting so the French CT mission, the counterterrorism mission Barkane I think was I think that's enduring but the other the other mission is closing down. the Brits pulled out as well when the French said they were going plus of course the Wagner group moved in this is in Mali and ostensibly the French the Brits and Wagner were all working for the Malian government, although there was a coup so it, it could have got quite ugly with the French and the Brits sharing. Logistic facilities or med facilities or or what have you with Wagner, so it was all a bit ugly, and they had to had to get out. But it is it is a zone of instability down there at the moment with a huge Islamic fundamentalist and growing problem. So we do need to we should we have, a, have a closer should. look and at that at some point.
0: Say Russia is playing a a role over there in um, in uh, there's a lot of fake news and a lot of a a lot of social media trolling going on accusing france of being neo-colonialists etc and and quite all that's coming from russia so yeah there are links that's for sure
1: ukraine the latest is an original podcast from the telegraph to stay on top of all of our ukraine news analysis and dispatches from the ground subscribe to the Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just one pound at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine the latest or sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine live blog on our website where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk and we do read every message. You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest was today produced by Giles Gear. The executive producers are David Knowles and Louisa Wells.